Welcome to AIs and with Andrew and Jen, a podcast where a designer and a data scientist break it down and duke it out over how to create awesome AI experiences. All right. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of AI Zen with Andrew and Jen. And I'm so excited. Again, this week, we have something new we've never done. We have a special guest today. Yay. Uh, joining us, we have Keith Vertries, and he's going to talk to us about uh, user research. And I'm very excited to see how this ties into uh, things we've been talking about before. So, Keith, in our past episodes, we talked about the importance of design thinking and the importance of having everyone in the room so you're all kind of heading in the same direction. And my first question to you is, if you're in that room uh, from a user user research perspective, which direction are you taking us? Yeah, so what I'm really doing is making sure that we're recognizing the assumptions we're making and we're asking ourselves, you know, what is the hypothesis that we think is true or is false that's leading us to make those assumptions? Um, And it's making sure we recognize what inputs uh, we need or that we may not have that we need to go fill in so that we can have a, a fully informed conversation. Um, you know, design thinking is is great. And, you know, you get a people in a room together and, and we start working on, on solutioning. Um, you get some great stuff out of it. But if we don't really understand the nature of the problem we're trying to solve and that we haven't done the due diligence to really make sure that the assumptions we're bringing into that conversation are, you know, are correct and are founded, then uh, we may be solving a problem that, uh, you know, isn't actually the right one to be solved. Yeah, I, I think that's that's great, Keith. And uh, so right away, I heard you say assumptions twice. I was going to ask after the first time and you said it twice. So I know that's important. What assumptions do you typically see uh, that are wrong uh, or most commonly wrong? Um, so assumptions about what the user wants to do in a product. Um, what we what we tend to do is assume that um, what the user does is uh, what the user wants to do, and what we don't realize is that the user is doing what what we built the the application or the tool to to allow them to do. And so, when we approach those problems, frequently we think about it as, oh, well, we must be missing a feature. Uh, and that's why the user is struggling to uh, to reach their desired objective or get the outcome they like. Um, but in reality, it could be that we forced them into a workflow that we believe is the correct workflow. And in reality, we're simply missing uh, this uh, this process or this way that they want to work that we could address through a better user experience that's potentially nothing to do with new features. Very interesting. So I, I really like that perspective. Um, so when we're, uh, how, how are we capturing that if, if we're in an initial workshop um, and we've got all the key stakeholders, um, what are we doing there to discover what they want to do versus what they're being forced to do by all of our past assumptions and the past things we've built? Well, so talking about having the right people in the room, it really is all about having the right people in the room. Um, if we are uh, coming into these workshops and the only participants are, you know, a, a product management team, maybe architects, uh, designer or developers and designers, um, then if we either haven't done the, the correct prerequisite research um, to be able to center the conversation and bring those insights and bring those facts into the conversation, then, you know, we're going to potentially go off course. Um, 
Um, or again, coming back to participants, uh, if, if we can start to bring in people that are actually affected by the work that we're doing, the people that are trying to use our tools to get their job done and to, uh, to create whatever awesome thing they're trying to create, um, they should be in the room with us and they should be an active participant in that co-creation exercise. And we should be careful, even in that setting where we're going to be doing a lot of ideation and ideas are going to be flying across the room to be mindful of the fact that, uh, you know, a set of participants in the room are the builders and a set of participants are the beneficiaries, the recipients of that work. And so we need to be careful to not bias them and really keep our minds open and defer to them on, on, uh, uh, on what, how they view the problems they're trying to solve. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to tie it to what I know from uh, the design thinking point of view. The one that came to mind was empathy maps. And it seems to me we, we do those to almost simulate what we think the user's pain points are or, or what we've heard kind of secondhand. Uh, are those things that you do uh, with the, the users or do you have completely different exercises? So when we're doing a design thinking workshop, we definitely do empathy maps. Um, and again, uh, you, you, you know, you hit the nail on the head by saying it's, uh, you know, what we've heard. And frequently that ends up being what it is, is it's a, a group of people bringing anec anecdotes together and using that as the basis of the empathy mapping exercise. Um, but when we think about user research, um, we should take a step back and consider that user research is not necessarily event based, right? It's not this this big workshop where we bring everyone together. Uh, and it's really more about changing the way that teams that build products think about building those products. And it's ensuring that there's an active cycle of, uh, you know, working with product management to question those hypotheses, getting out in front of users uh, frequently in one-on-one -on -one sessions, um, performing contextual inquiries, performing field studies, um, uh, performing uh, competitive evaluations and usability testing uh, to make sure that we're, we're getting a continuous feedback, a continuous loop of feedback from the users that become the basis of the decisions we make. So when we go into that workshop, like I said, we're bringing with us a lot of those findings and a lot of that clarity so that when we do the design thinking exercise, we have that fact basis to work from. So, you know, it's, it's great to talk about um, design thinking workshops but the majority of the work that researchers do are not sitting in workshops. Yeah, that, that makes sense also. So I heard you say another thing that really caught my attention. You say they came with anecdotes and, and you prefer to drive them towards facts or, or data. Uh, can you give us a little bit about what data we should be bringing in? Is there a particular format? Are there templates you ask people to fill in? Um, you know, what's going to make us successful um, as we're trying to be more user focused? Yeah. So uh, remember, you know, when we talk about data um, from a user research perspective, we're frequently talking about qualitative data, right? So it's the summation of um, numerous observations that are prompted through uh, a, a research protocol where we're asking the same questions and we're, we're recording the answers. We're observing how users respond to those questions. Um, and so when we, we bring those, we have to bring those as synthesis, right? As a hypothesis that we've tested and we've validated or we falsified. We have to bring it as observations of fact that are based and supported by 
uh, each of those individual observations and interactions that we had with those users. And so bringing those things together in a set of qualitative data become a big component of that. And, and that's about sharing it out and teaching it in the beginning of these exercises. And again, it happens at workshops, but in reality, where it needs to happen is the, the daily interactions within a product team, within user researchers, designers, and product managers sitting together and understanding the questions that are being asked and the answers that we're finding. Um, but the flip side of that is the quantitative side. And this is the part that I find really exciting because there's such a huge opportunity within user research to incorporate uh, more quantitative data. So if we want to understand um, what users are doing in our products, uh, we can go and talk to them, right? We can set up interviews, we can go on site and we can observe them. We can have, you know, uh, you know calls on, on Zoom and, and WebEx, um, but we can also look at the data, right? And if we've instrumented correctly, we're able to capture those journeys they take through our products to build a perspective on not just the tasks that they're completing, but also who they are and where they may be struggling. And that forms an excellent basis to then go and do that additional research that generates those qualitative findings that become the center point of those conversations. So I, I could keep asking questions. I don't want to monopolize. Jen, do you want to ask a question? <laughs> I have questions. Sure. So Keith, you, you are the manager, program manager for a bunch of researchers. Uh, and I'm really curious, we're talking about design thinking. Um, you're focused on making sure that we validated the assumptions that we're making, which I think is such a huge issue with AI. But I would love to hear from you if you adapt how you do research or how you use design thinking, how you create, do you even create personas? If um, the solutions that you think you're going to be implementing are going to be data powered or, or AI powered, does that change how you do a research role? So when we think about the personas we're creating, um, we, we try not to think about the solutions as part of defining the persona. Um, so AI is an, an approach to solving problems for a user, but the persona is defined by a set of attributes that describe uh, who that person is and what problems they're trying to solve, um, uh, who else they work with, what type of interactions they have. And so when we look at solving those problems that those users have, um, we don't assume that we're going to solve it through one technology or another. And so when we, we step back and think, okay, we need to you know, provide a workflow or some, some capability that lets a user achieve some outcome, um, what's the best way for us to do that? And sometimes that answer is going to be an AI-driven feature. And, you know, in so much as we are able to identify and uncover those, it's really informed by the experience and the familiarity that the team working on these problems has with, with you know, features that you could call data-driven features. Uh, and if the organization isn't, you know, fundamentally data literate and fundamentally thinking about the type of opportunity that having access to all that data that can drive, you know, automated workflows or suggested best next action action or some of the basic stuff in the UI, a lot of those solutions aren't going to emerge to those problems. So 
Um, do we incorporate AI as a potential component in personas? No, because we don't, you know, solutions aren't a part of defining personas. Do we discuss AI as a potential solution when we're thinking about how to solve those users' problems? We should be doing more of that. And again, I think it starts with education and it starts with, with making all the participants in the product building process, design included and research included, much more data literate. Data literate. Um, you have thrown out three data words that I would really like you to clarify for us. So data aware, data informed and data driven. What yeah. do those mean to you? So data aware. So if, if there's a, uh, uh, um, a book uh, called Designing with Data um, by uh, King Churchill and Tan that they produced an interesting perspective on the concept of data-driven design. And the, the key phrase we hear frequently is data-driven design. But they perf- they proposed a few other terms that describe sort of an escalation up the level of integration and the role that data plays in your design process. If you start with data-aware design, it's, it's simply incorporating data into the design decisions you make. So at a most basic level, that could be usability testing. It could be taking a a new workflow, a new interaction, um, use, you know, doing testing, uh, you know, either moderated or unmoderated with 10 or 20 or 30 users, um, aggregating the results, asking some questions about how easy they felt the process was, looking at task success rate, task completion time. And those results become uh, providing you an awareness of uh, some quantitative measure of the success of the design work that you've done. And that is just, that's table stakes. That is extremely basic. As you progress from there and you start to get to the data informed design concept, that's where as part of your design process, you're asking questions about how what you're doing is going to impact, uh, you know, KPIs or, or OKRs that you're using to manage your business. So um, you might ask yourself, uh, you know, if we want to increase engagement on this page or use of this feature, um, how do we first baseline that and measure it? And then how do we determine what design changes we can make that are going to drive those improvements? So the data isn't necessarily leading the solution, but it's being used as an important input in defining a potential solution and then defining the success criteria. And then finally, um, data-driven design, you know, as they define it, is truly having the data lead in the design decisions that we're making. And, and, and I don't know, I mean, you know, I, I don't know how realistic getting to that state is where all design decisions are purely made on a data-informed basis. But the thing I like about this escalating scale is that if you go into an organization and you, you know, talk to them about what type of analytics are they using to help them understand their users and help them test the efficacy of the designs they push and understand the impact they're having on their users. And if they don't have answers to those basic questions, there has to be a place to start. And saying, well, we're going to have, you know, design decisions rely on data as an input is a pretty big leap. But saying, hey, we're going to do some usability testing and we're going to do some measurement to see how many people this particular interaction affects and how it affects their engagement so that we can be, uh, you know, informed about that and then measure the impact of the changes we make then you have an opportunity to teach them how to go ask for that data, how to push things like instrumentation and learn those basics so they can actually have that conversation. Yeah. Love it. A couple, couple things I wanted to just call out again uh, and, 
and you know, they remind me of things from, from earlier shows. So I was very excited about that. I heard you say, essentially, we're not just sprinkling AI onto our problems. We're making sure that we have an AI problem first, you know, based on listening to our users. And, and secondly, that we need to, in a data awareness uh, informed point of view, we actually need to understand what are the objectives, what are the, the OKRs, uh, as you stated. Uh, the projects I've been in, that's been a challenge, uh, you know, just as a, as a baseline. And you said, like, like you said, these are the table stakes, right? To get started, yeah. I, need, I need to know this stuff, right? And, and by the way, those, again, those aren't, you know, accuracy. It's not accuracy that you're measuring. It's what are your, are your users accomplishing their tasks? I, I love the idea. It's set the baseline. And then to tie what you, again, what you said earlier, you need a hypothesis, Right. So there's something I want to improve. I want to improve conversion on this rate on this page. Um, well, what's my current uh, conversion? I hope I know that. Right. If not, I better go figure that out. Um, and I should set the hypothesis that, hey, if I do X, it's going to improve that. Right? And then I can go build it. I can test it. If it didn't work, I can go backwards. If it worked, I can keep going. Exactly. Andrew, it just occurred to me. I can't believe this has never like popped into my head before. You're not an AI scientist. You're a data scientist. I, I, <laughs> guilty. <laughs> That's totally your jam is what Keith is describing, collecting data to inform and drive decisions, not immediately jump to data powers AI. Therefore, we're going to have an AI powered solution. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. This is how data scientists had jobs before this whole AI thing. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> and, 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 and the funny part is, you know, some of the best data scientists that I've ever had the pleasure of working with, their contribution to the business that, that really would make the biggest impact is not the complexity of the model they can create is not the, uh, you know, how, you know, the type of, um, you know, neural network they're able to build that, you know, solve some huge problem. It's their ability to simply communicate to, um, you know, I don't want to use the term lay people necessarily, but, uh, you know, a, a business a stakeholder that may not really understand how to think in terms of data to clearly communicate to them, um, what the data could be telling us and what questions we could be answering or what questions we should be asking. And frequently that starts with some very, very simple analytics, but you have to start there. And, uh, you know, we can find data scientists that can build, you know, phenomenal models, but the hard thing is data scientists that can help teach and people who don't have that level of data literacy, how to think in terms of data, what data is produced by some activity they're interested in, some activity their users undertake, what data do we need to answer a question we have? And even just closing that knowledge gap can do amazing things in a business. Do you have a real life example of that, Keith, that you could share? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, in a, a previous life, a uh, long time ago, um, I led, uh, you know, analytics functions for uh, a couple of retailers and, um, uh, we were an online grocer in, uh, in New York. I won't name the one, uh, <laughs> there aren't that many. Um, and you know, there was a question of, really who our competitors were. 
And there were a lot of assumptions made by the merchandising organization, by leadership in that company of, of who our competitors were. And we made a lot of decisions about how we designed our storefront and what type of promotions we ran uh, based on the assumption that we were competing with a, a certain set of competitors. But no one really asked themselves, how could we actually prove that, right? And people would point to, oh, we made a price change and then three days later, uh, that competitor made a similar price change as being um, some strong evidence that they really are following us. They're he, you know, locked in some heated battle with us. And so the, the, the question I just asked was, you know, presumably if we are in, you know, hot competition with that company, you know, we're going to see some overlap in, uh, in, you know, uh, page referral from, from coming from their website or people searching on our website for products that are only carried by that competitor. So why don't we just try to answer that first? And, uh, there was skepticism that we even had the data to do that. Um, but of course we did, right. The, the engineering team that would build this, uh, you know, our storefront and build in a search functionality um, they're they're going to have records of what people searched for. And so we were able to just pull together an extremely simple analysis that just showed that overlap of search terms that were did not match a product on our website, but did match a product that one of our competitors would carry, like one of their, their private brands or a brand that, that we don't have. And what we showed is that there's almost no overlap. And what that allowed us to do right, is not draw the conclusion that their hypothesis was wrong, but to say, let's spend a little bit more money and let's go interview some customers and ask them about their shopping habits so that we can really understand what's going on here. And we were able to do that. And we were able to prove that those, uh, the, you know, the two big competitors that we paid so much attention to, those customers did not cross shop us at all. They didn't pay attention to us. They weren't our customers. And then later on, Right. Long time after that, I worked for a company that had one of those competitors as a client. And uh, I asked them, hey, you know, your client, did they ever pay attention to, you know, this retailer that I work for? And the answer is no. They, they, we didn't even have them set up in the system as one of the prices we tracked. Wow. And fundamentally, the, you know, there was no complicated data science there. It was simply having the awareness to ask the question, what data does our business generate and how close can it get to informing this conversation to move it in a more productive direction? You know, Keith, this reminds me of a, of a quote here from Albert Einstein. Uh, he said, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about the solutions. That's and a wonderful quote. <laughs> I, I think your, your story just nails it on the head. You, you think problem definition, how hard can that be? But really, that's the... That really is the first thing we got to go after. It's not, I got to sprinkle some AI in on this thing, right? It's what, what am I doing? What, what do I need to solve? Yeah. So, so let's pull that back to a design organization, right? Where we have, you know, a lot of designers that are, are incredibly talented. They uh, understand visual design. They've got great taste. They understand interaction design. Um, you know, they've been taught uh, the fundamentals of, um, of how to build a, a good experience. They've been taught the tenants and traps. You know, they know how to do a heuristic evaluation to make sure they're not, you know, shipping something obviously, you know, broken. They are uh, familiar with the, the concept and, and the, the fundamentals of research because they've been trained as a T-shaped designer. If no one has taught them about how all those interactions that they're enabling their users to take show up in a data set 
and how to think about what questions would I want to ask if I could ask any question, if I was omniscient and I could watch every single interaction, what would I want to watch and what would it teach me? If we don't teach them how to think that way, then they're never going to be able to make that next leap to thinking about incorporating AI solutions. Because fundamentally, the AI solution is really based on what data do we have that we can apply to this problem. And if we're not teaching them to think about the data that's generated as part of users actually using the thing we ship to them, then they're never going to be able to organically arrive at those solutions or even propose uh, you know, potential uh, AI applications to solve problems for their users. And so, again, it sounds super basic, but just ask the designers, hey, when users interact with this page you've designed, what, what, do you, what would you want to be alerted to? Do you want to know every time they click this button? Do you want to know every time they, uh, they uh, you know, uh, expand this hamburger menu? Do you want to know what they typed in this search field? And what would you do with that information? Great. Now let's get it instrumented. That has to be the first step. And if we don't do that, we're never going to get to AI. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Keith, do you see this? I mean, obviously you're describing it as either a new skill that designers need to build into their repertoire, which is just thinking about and understanding data, or do you see it more as data teams should be, you know, kind of guiding designers and extracting through questions, the kinds of data that would be helpful to collect. So I think it, it has to be both, but it has to start with placing resources that understand data and have the, the love, the communication skills required to talk to a person without the same level of data literacy uh, embedding those in those teams. And I know that this is a pattern that a lot of successful companies have followed. Uh, you know, you know, big tech companies have, um, you know, analytics teams that are dedicated to supporting design. And, and this is a pattern that does work. Uh, and the thing you have to overcome is that, that gap in knowledge and understanding. And, and you see this in the business world as well, where on one side you have a business owner who understands the, 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 the business itself, understands the soft skills, understands, you know, how to solve a problem and put a solution together and pitch it and close the deal, how to define, uh, you know, the problem that a product solves, how to make a compelling case uh, of visual merchandising, you know, how to promote something. Uh, but they don't understand the the data that could answer deeper questions for them. And then when you talk to the data scientists, you know, they, they get the data. They know the, the, the fundamental um, the practices, the principles, the methodologies that you learn as a data science. They know those and they know how to apply them, but they don't understand the business context of the data they may have been given access to. Exact same thing happens with design. Um, we have designers that know the product inside and out. They know the workflows, but they don't, they don't conceptually understand how all of that behavior that's very visual translates into uh, a gigantic file of values that are, you know, are stored in, you know, a database or, or object storage or some other type of storage. And the data scientist understands how to consume that data, but they don't have the context for what to look for, how to understand it and what to do with it. And, and some of the initial, you know, exploratory techniques that data science are taught, you know, uh, you know, do all the measures of central tendency, do some basic tests to see what the data represents. Uh, as we move away from just basic things like financial data and transactional data, and we move into data that is a representation of, of user behavior and in 
engagement with a visual system, a lot of those traditional methods of learning the data set are not going to teach them anything valuable. They're going to see, oh, a whole lot of people uh, execute the login function. Okay, great, right? What does that mean? And is that really something we should be paying that much attention to? And so closing that knowledge gap has to happen by getting people that know data and understand uh, how to, you know, explain, uh, you know, complicated concepts to people that aren't familiar with data, get them working with designers that, that crave this stuff and they don't realize it. I was just going to say, Keith, like, are you available for all of my workshops? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I am really passionate. I, I, I've only found a couple of data scientists that are the kind of people that I could put in front of a business stakeholder, put in front of a client and just have absolute faith that they are going to be able to teach that person something, you know, r- reduce confusion instead of increasing confusion and not be hung up on methodology, but still be able to actually come up with a solution and do the work. They are, uh, they are incredibly rare and, uh, and I am, I'm just, I'm thrilled to find anyone that can do that. Yeah. So, so it, it, it does remind me, and again, we talked a little bit last week about it, what's the most important thing in the room, uh, when you gather all these people together and I, I you didn't say it directly, but I think it is the empathy, right? Can you understand anything that's outside of your skill set? Yeah. If you're the data scientist, you need to understand not just the data, but the business, right? Yeah. And so on and so forth, right? So, no, that that's that's that is definitely great. You know, we talk about that all the time, but do we ever talk about like how we should be learning that? Like, what? How do we teach empathy to young people in college or even in high school? Do, do you guys have ideas on that? Well, I think I'd want to spend more time thinking about the problem than the solution, and we'd probably run out of time. <laughs> well, well done. Well done. Perfect answer. <laughs> uh, I, I, I will give the, the advice I give to, to uh, people is um, th- there's a, a book, a classic book, the Dale Carnegie book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And uh, not directly related in terms of we're necessarily trying to, to influence, but the whole point of that book is you need to look from someone else's point of view, right? And, and he gives so many great examples examples about he was in some sort of situation right and the, the person was always looking at things from their point of view and they were they weren't getting anywhere right and as soon as they flipped and uh, looked at the person they were interacting with and what they were trying to accomplish that was the entire key right so that that's that's a building block uh, it's probably not the full solution but it's it's something useful that's that you could do it's the first thing I tell uh, I tell my the people I mentor that the younger um, professionals. Hey, go, go check that out. It's a new way of thinking. And conversations, because today you guys completely opened my mind to that aspect of data science, not actually being AI. And the fact that, and I really want anybody that's listening, who's a designer to hear this, data scientists are also creative problem solvers, just like us. Absolutely. They just don't work with clay like we do. They work with sticks and things. They're just more, you know, they're doing something in a different medium. I think that is so important to us understanding about each other and then learning to build these bridges. I love it, Jen. I, I think we've had a pretty successful interview here. Uh, I, I, I'm just going to suggest we could, we could wrap it up. Well, shall, shall we go to our plugs? 
So dear listeners, please subscribe to us, whether you're listening through Apple or the Googles, um, give us some stars, add some comments. Right now, we're pretty sure our parents are the only ones listening and we love them. But, you know, more listeners. And what else, Andrew? You want to subscribe on iTunes? You want to leave a comment anywhere you find us on LinkedIn, on uh, on Twitter? It's uh, at AIZen Podcast. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Andrew R. Freed. Jen, you're on there somewhere. Uh, At AIZen Podcast. And then, Keith, do you want to share any uh, you know, where you are, where you can be found? Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, find me on LinkedIn, Keith Vertries. Uh, I am hiring uh, user researchers here in Austin. If you want to work on an amazing team and learn data, uh, uh, reach out to me. Uh, I'd love to have you. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at The Price is Right. And if you look through my, my, my history on LinkedIn, uh, the, the handle will start to make sense. Um, but um, uh, yeah, we've got a great team going here and uh, I'm looking for some, some good user researchers that want to work on cloud. So please reach out. I can vouch for that too. Keith's team is pretty dope. So hit him up. Hey, Andrew, what else? That's it. Thanks everybody for listening. 